trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stock that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger. So we chat to people about the skills and tools that you need to find. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things. But just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. All right, listeners, thanks for joining us. Today, we've got Mark Wallace, uh, Managing Director of Gold50, jumping on the show. Mark, thanks for coming on. G'day. Thanks for having me. Brilliant, mate. Do you want to just jump straight into your background and story and what got you into finance and markets? Yeah, sure, mate. You're not even going to buy me a drink first. Anyway, all right, let's get into it. Um, so I'm currently managing director of Gold 50. My background is uh, mostly coming, um, growing up in a small gold mining town. Some of your audiences might be familiar with it, uh, Kalgoorlie. And uh, my way out of Cal was either going underground and working or probably uh, you know, going to university and getting out. So I chose the latter, did a business degree, and then uh, spent a bit of time breaking in Australia with Hartleys and uh, ended up in London in late 99, early 2000 with RBC, and then sort of story goes from there, travelled the world, you know, specialising in global mining and energy and having lots of fun firstly and and then making money with it as well. That's a very condensed version, Mark. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> were there any sort of, you know, moments where you were like, this is the game I want to be in? I appreciate, you know, it's a mining town and whatnot, but did you fall in love with underground mining straight away did you like the punting aspect of it what what drew, drew you to drew it or drew, drew oh, you to it all yeah no good question i mean growing up in in mining town you sort of get the understanding the feel of the cycle so you know we had mini cycle of the nickel boom and gold boom through the 90s and so on and so we i kind of saw and felt the end of what people probably see and feel now and and living it was pretty unique and then Trying to backward solve and going, well, how do we get to this point and, and what's driving these things? Uh, so my old man is uh, is a mechanic by trade. You know, the boy's been around sort of, um, you know, vehicles, drillers, rigs, and, and crews. So you hear the stories and the yarns, and that's the romantic notion of it. And it wasn't until I sort of got into breaking the back end, you start to appreciate just how long nature and life, long cycle these these things are. And so you would hear about the drilling success and and people making lots of money. And then you kind of realise all the hard work, effort and planning that goes in behind the scenes. So I kind of sort of got a bit excited about the whole process of it. It wasn't actually until I got into it and you start to realise just how much is involved. So I think us as investors or shareholders or punters, we kind of see the last 5% of the 95% of the effort that goes into it. And uh, having gone from broking in corporate finance and so on, now being on this side of it, you appreciate just the effort, you know, even much more than that. So um, it was kind of like a long love affair. Um, and then just really once I got to Union Perth and started studying and understanding a bit more of how the system works, matching it up with the network and, and the background, the history of what goes on on ground, uh, a, a better appreciation for it all. And so I think I was better servicing my customers and clients and so on, you know, especially when I got to London. Um, and you start sort of about mining, having, having the background and that experience. So. Uh, it was gradual, and then now it's just a full-blown love affair and passion. 
Yeah, no, that's terrific, Mark. I, I guess it's really unique for us because you are, uh, I think, one of our first guests, if not, you know, definitely unique in a sense that you're managing director of a listed company. And we've we've tended not to go that way for for a variety of reasons, but really keen to to unpack the the version of how you went from broking and into you know full circle because we just spoke to another guest who who's done these sort of opposite. He's you know was was working for listeds and he's gone back into broking and corporate and, and you're doing the opposite. So we thought it was a nice way of mirroring the two up together, but. Do you have any yeah. stories, anything, you know, you mentioned London, you know, finance yep. capital of the world. Do you have any, like, stories about some epic runs? Oh, yeah, look, I mean, I got there in sort of November 20th, 2000, it was. I remember it was a Monday I started, and I was just the young buck on the desk in my early 20s. And so um, RBC at the time uh, had only really started venture out of North America, had bought a, a, a currency and bond business, made it bolt on equity business, and I was part of the equity business there. So, you know, I kind of learned my trade under some really, you know, smart analysts uh, and salesmen and, and corporate advisors and so on. And, um, you know, there's a saying, rather be lucky than smart. Um, there's a gentleman named Matt Yates who always says the more drill, you know, the more you drill, the more luck you have. And and uh, he certainly did that in Africa. But, um, you know, getting to London 2000 is, you know, just after the dot-com tech bubble blowing up. The market was kind of trying to find its way. We had, you know, low interest rates. You know, the rates had been cut really hard and fast. Big stimulus coming in uh, for global growth, and then also China then stimulating, and uh, it was kind of just like a massive land grab, like demand for commodities you see coming. And there was a narrative, but then you could actually see the reality of it going on as well. So, you know, being in London, we did a lot of work in Africa, West Africa, a bit of East Africa. Um, you know, Aussie corporates that were coming up and doing a global road trip were coming to London first and we'd catch them up there. So, you know, you sort of, you know, gold was kind of sub a thousand, you know, you had copper sub a dollar, like all these numbers over 20 years, they seem crazy now, but that was just the way the business was. So, you know, wouldn't say we got lucky, but big stimulus, global growth, everyone was trying to understand commodities, how they all worked, how you made money out of it. And we were just kind of, you know, sitting in between watching the money fall from the sky and just trying to grab it, you know. So it was, uh, it was really fun times. And so, um, a little less sophisticated than it is now, you know, like still require the network, uh, a lot of modeling, understanding businesses, sort of like really technical, the engineers, analysts, you know, were definitely you know, either, you know, engineers or, or geologists and so on. And so we were just sort of just trying to consume, you know, the music information that came through. So. I was um, sort of on the trading desk, supporting the sales effort for global mining and energy. You know, having come from Kalgoorlie, knowing a lot about my patch, then having sort of in a global context, understand, you know, different parts of the world, how they operated, fiscal regimes, you know, geopolitics, um, and look, an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold. So, you know, then you start to sort of risk assets by location, you know, fiscal regimes, taxes as they come out of the ground. Will you still own it in five years' time? And so, you know, we didn't have many of those issues so much um, then as we do now. You know, like for me, investing globally was, you know, love a gold project. You have to go to where the geology is. Um, and then you backward solve and risk it for things like, you know, uh, will I own it? Who's my partner? Operating costs, taking one, three, five year view. So at the time when, you know, gold's like 600 and you think it's going to 1500, it kind of washes away those risks, but, um, you know, it's a bit different these days. So 
But we had some monumental runs, you know, like you name all the big moves and all the commodity prices. You know, we got to play in it all. So um, oil and gas, you know, RBC had a really strong energy practice, especially in um, in North America. So, you know, we were sort of at the forefront of the unconventional oil and gas when it came through. So that was really cool. That was probably one of the biggest structural changes in energy supply anyone will probably ever live and see. And now we just take it for granted, you know. We were, we were talking about, oh, these guys are doing a three-stage frack. It's never been done before. And now it's like 22, 24, 28, 40 stages. You know, they're drawing like four or five kilometres a day, you know, something three k's horizontal. I mean, really cutting edge stuff, you know. And that so, changed their mark. Sorry, just to jump in. You're saying it was the biggest energy change. Is that the the discovery effectively of, of gas and how much that was and its utilisation or...? Uh, for oil and gas in so North America with the shale basins and so on, it was always kind of known, but it needed the technology to really crack the code. And that's what they did. And they're beautiful in the US. Like I always say, you never bet against the US consumer. Like everyone talks about recessions and so on. And they, those guys will spend their way out of a problem. No problem. You know, no worries at all. But some of the best, you know, pointiest brains you'll get in the energy patch are in those big, you know, the, the big multinational groups out of North America. And they just needed to really crack the code on the technology. And then once, you know, we had, you know, really cheap debt because interest rates were being cut by it would have been Greenspan at the time that, we you know, rolled into the next guy. And then the technology advancements were just so clear, you know, and they got lots of infrastructure there. So that's why you always see unconventional in North America work better than other places. They had a arbitrage on technology, cost of funding. And especially through reserve-based lending and RBL, so the banks always lend against you know, you know the, the reserve you have on the balance sheet, and then um, just the infrastructure. You know, the best place to find an, an, an oil project at the end of a pipeline, right? But these guys have pipelines everywhere, so you know you can get it to market quick enough. All the infrastructure there. So you know this is where, like in Australia, you know we're a large landmass and a small population base. You know, so we've got a natural competitive advantage in a sense that, uh, you know, we've got lots of stuff that people want to buy. You know, we should be probably running carnic out surpluses and budget surplus all the time, you know, just because we don't spend as much here and we don't have to import as much. But, you know, we just don't have infrastructure. So, you know, you see some guys trying to do some really cool work in the beta loop, um, you know, without naming names, like the stuff they do is really cool. You know, like I think it's really awesome. Um, they're taking the competitive advantage job, understanding the knowledge and IP that the US guys have built in the last 20 years, and they're just bringing it to Australia, you know, but uh, it's harder for the market to get their heads around it, hard to get probably market support. But, you know, there's lots and lots of hydrocarbons in the beta load, and it just needs to find a way to, to come to market. But, um, you know, it's, it's the same in all commodities, you know, needs must. And so supply can usually be found, it's, you know, not the similar sort of lithium. Yeah, we're in the Atacama for so long and looking at cheap sort of the Brian place. You know, the market demand picked up, needed to fill the gap. And so we found it in pegmatites and the hard rock stuff in WA. And so WA guys could permit faster, you know, understand how to big, how to dig up big holes in the ground. You know, if there's anything you know in WA, it's, you know, exercising and moving. The one large, thing we can do well, yeah. Yeah, large, large, large amounts of dirt. And, um, and they did it. So they, you know, human ingenuity is a, is a great thing. This is what I'm constantly positive on the cycle and the sector and what we do. You know, like we always need, I'm bullish on stuff that comes out of the ground. And then it just comes down to like, you know, how juniors can we get in amongst it and uh, and make some money and have some fun. 
Well, you, you've partly gone and asked, answered the question I was going to ask was you talked about the oil and gas change. Do you yeah. think, is it lithium that's the next one? Is it uranium? Would you have any views on what that, that next big energy change might end up being? Yeah, look, I um, funded a few guys in the uranium space for a few years there when I was in London. I'm a massive uranium bull, but I've never made money out of it, you know. So, and uh, look, I'm fundamental. So, you know, if you ask the question of what demand looks like per year, supply, and how it matches up, there's a lot of uranium around, you know, like there's a lot of uranium in the world, um, but just probably at the wrong price. And so demand now finally is there's a sensible conversation being had, whether it's uh, NGOs or it's big green or, you know, whatever, whatever it needs to be. But, um, yeah, the small modular reactor, I think, is probably the game changer for most. I think um, what people need to understand, though, is these cycles are a lot longer, you know, so... And this is not just for uranium or for SMRs or whatever, but if you're looking at a gold company, a copper company, you know, uranium, whatever, you know, you have to think in one, three, five, ten years. You know, if you look at from discovery to then resource drill out, feasibility study work, funding, you know, construction and so on, you know, shareholders and investors think in one day, one month, one quarter, and we're matching those those time frames with you know, underlying trying to build these things you know they're measured in years in uranium probably more like decades so i go back to my earlier comment on bullish stuff okay and this is a probably in a, in a macro sense it's feared currency versus hard assets and so <clears throat> if you've got a barrel of oil an ounce of gold a ton of copper whatever it is you know a bushel of corn a uh, wheat you know i'm bullish that because you know, it's hard to find it again, you know, hard to build it, hard to supply the market. Demand will always be there. I mean, we're sitting here worried about a global recession, right? And so what I would, you know, to November 2023, industrial commodities are pricing a recession that we haven't had yet. Uh, if you look at conventional market analysis at the moment and like Goldman Sachs, they're looking at US growth of 2.6% next year. You know, China's telling us they're targeting 4.95%. US and Europe's probably going to be in a recession, but more broadly, you know, growth is going to be plus two percent next year. So that's not a recession, that's growth, right? So you've got this narrative dichotomy of global growth is going to be positive. Currently, everyone doesn't believe it, they're pricing recession. And so you've got this sort of narrative and then reality sort of you know mismatch. So I think bullish stuff that comes out of the ground, you know, wars will come and go, you know, things will change and things will happen, but People need to eat, need, need to build houses, need to build roads, and uh, we've been massive underinvestment in supply of all of this stuff. So, yeah, Mark, just to jump, Mark, just to jump in because there's a lot yeah. of conversation we can tease out about the taking a long cycle view and and mm. bullish stuff out of the ground. But I just want to come back to you in London. Um, yeah. You're talking about, you know some mad money that was made did you have any <laughs> epic baggers that's what this podcast's about right you know like yeah. how, do they, how do investors find them and, and then i guess the question if you've got a story to share with the listeners is what made you transition from corporate broking into yeah. you know what you're doing now yeah sure so i mean there was many because we got lucky with the cycle you know we're buying stuff that was worth cents in the dollar and that would get valued at two dollars in the dollar like we saw some crazy stuff and so one notable win was uh, Riverstar Mining, you know, which was, uh, it started off as an anthracite colliery in, in South Africa. 
than the guys and you're backing the guys as much as you are the projects and so on so the guys they're second to none they've gone on and done it again now with champion iron but you know we were in there at riversdale at like 20 cents and kept funding it at 40 cents and the dollar and the four and we ended up you know getting taken out by rio at like 16 17 dollars you know so that was something where you know we we backed we liked the jockey the horse was okay but we knew the jockey was always gonna you know bring us home and so <clears throat> from 20 to 40 cents to like you know 15 16 dollars you trade around at whatever you want we had a gfc in the middle so you know we did uranium you know like penny stocks like paladin went from one cent to like 12 dollars or whatever it was you know so you know, we had that in the first cycle <laughs> the lithium you know in range in the first cycle i mean this is i call this the third lithium cycle right and for some others it's the first but you know i've been around long enough so um but you know gold stocks you know from discovery through to takeout like there's lots and lots of examples i think you know these days uh, we get caught in a narrative of like what it needs to look like and if you've got great projects that run by good people they'll always be funded you know there's always some great ideas out there the reason you know i left you know did my 15 16 years and ended up on this side of the fence was more um you know you back you know in from nearly 2000 through to more recently you could you know do a lot of good break and do quality work but i think the, the structure of the industry has changed and you know i think for you guys you might understand this better than me because i'm a bit older there seems to be a move to more active uh less active fund managers say institutional and and there's more passive money in etfs and so you know my roller decks when i was working in london was probably you know as long as both arms you know and there'd always be someone running active money or a hedge fund um had the expertise have a sensible evidence-based discussion the relative merits of a gold project or a copper project that are pull free this and that and now it's more about you need to be a market cap size you need to be liquidity size and then you'll get the etf buying or the algorithm buying and things like that and so for me it's not fundamentally how i see the business operating and so going back to you know good minds and quality projects take years to evolve trying to match up with a pool of capital that thinks in days weeks and months and quarters and so I just saw a fundamental mismatch. So for me, leaving the industry is pretty simple because, you know, I've got a valuable expertise and IP and knowledge built up over two decades. It was better for me to be on this side of the fence and work it within, um, you know, a, a company doing it this way. Um, I probably went a bit too hard in the sense uh, we, we're exploration. We've got a discovery. We've got more brownsfield drilling to be done on a different project. It's really fun. Most importantly, you know, I call it project people and and process and so we've got great projects work with really good people the process is really simple and consistent so you know for those out there that like institutional land most institutional fund managers have a process and people invest in the process yeah hopefully the outcomes are positive but providing you're investing against the process then you kind of take the draws and the negatives with the positives and so on and move on you know exploration is not dissimilar you know really good people and expertise that understand what they're doing um you know the geological model that you're trying to you know you do the work on interpret drill build the model out and keep on going so long answer to a short question that you know fundamentally the business we were doing for the 10 12 years up until 2013 14 gfc kind of changed things but more more often than not the the participants in the markets changed so in the institutional space which is where i spent most of my time uh or all of it actually 
they uh, you know the, the active fund managers um, you know, are a lot less and few and far between, and then that space is dominated by bigger funds and more passive style money. So um, then counteracting that, you know, there's been uh, good access to apps and and online trading forums and and platforms and so on. There's more you know what we call high net worth individuals, and then you know for for the rest of us. You know, guys that want to maybe you know punch on a daily basis or weekly or monthly and then that's really grown significantly compared to when i was in the business 20 years ago so it's um it's been really interesting and to be honest i kind of find the latter cohort a bit smarter and a bit you know a bit edgier ask the harder questions but more willing to learn and that's the more fun conversations and so you know, in, in a business that's sub 100 mil market cap you know, that's more fun for me because I get to speak to people who genuinely want to come along for the ride. You know, believe what you're doing, understand the process, you know, get it, understand it takes a bit longer. And so it's kind of flipped on its head, but it's really cool. It's really fun. I think that's, I'm sure the listeners will relate to that. And just observing a comment you made, I think it's really interesting about the comparison of people understanding that a person is going to drive an exploration process. You know, it's about the quality of the people to make that happen. Yeah. Yet some of those same people that would, be very happy with that we'll argue that like you shouldn't actively invest and i think that comparison's great like that you should just passively let something and somebody else do it it's a very it's a bit of a disconnect between like the two two approaches and that somebody yeah. could make go argue to the blue in the face on both things that really are actually a lot more similar than what you're describing i think that is where yeah certainly sam and i and the people that we talk to there's an opportunity in the market there where you're able to almost exploit the um the passiveness of yes. money and see an advantage and an edge in where there's actually, yeah, you can do, you can actually do your own work and actually get a bit of a an advantage and insight. And that's the beauty of it. I've you know, called it the democratization of sort of you know capital flows and investment. You know, like twenty years ago, there's no way you'd you know, be able to log on and trade for like ten bucks a ticket. You know, but now you can. And um, and because there's a massive gap in the market from people who can price assets and progress accordingly. There is access now for all of us to get in there and buy something for pennies in the pound, you know. And I think genuinely, you don't even have to take a big, risky, long-term view. I think you know, genuinely, there are stocks out there trading right now really crazy cheap. That you know, you can buy them, maybe be willing to take a two-month view instead of two weeks. I think you can pay off. But you know, there's a this you know, the, the, the lithium sector in, in Australia is now I think almost as big or as big as the gold sector. And it only took like six years to get there. So there's lots of capital that's been made there, but the participants has been really narrow, you know? So I don't think you'll find too many, you know, small fund managers as a generalization. The, the generalist fund manager wouldn't participate in a lot of these moves, you know, just because it wouldn't tick most of the hurdles, um, and the mandates and so on. But, um, I certainly know a lot of taxi drivers in Sydney who participated, but they're more than willing to <laughs> share their ideas. I suspect so. you're right, and I'm sure, and the fund managers that went for gold and silver and nickel instead, um, not only did they yeah. not get that upside, but they actually saw the downside on the, the holdings that they yeah, didn't have no, the commodity. Yeah, no, exactly. And look, everyone's got a war story there, but I just think like that's a great more recent example that, yeah. you know, for the, for the guy that listening here, there is opportunity all the time, and despite the doom and gloom and the naysayers and it's rubbish, you know, if you do your work, you know, you've got people that you can work with that you rely on and trust their, you know, views and so on, technical especially. Um, you know, I think there's great opportunity on almost every day, you know. So uh, maybe a bit more 
directly like to the to the company work that you're involved in now. That's um, yeah. some of the advantages, I suppose, from an investor side. Are there any things that that caught you off guard or that you took for granted now that you joined the dark side of being in a company? Or <laughs> uh, look, I'm pretty I'm pretty social, so like I can deal with all of that. I, I think the thing that I've noticed the most, and especially from I came in when the prospectus is like two thirds written. I work with a great bunch of guys, really strong technically, and also you know in compliance land, but. Um, I think people fail to appreciate the cost of, you know, sub $20 million companies on being listed. Now, there is quite a premium. I think it should be worth more than they really are. So, um, listing fees and you know, the ASX, the compliance, you know, audit and for your audits. <clears throat> and they're all there for a reason to protect shareholders and investors. And I think, you know, like I've traded Johannesburg Stock Exchange, LSC, you know, I've, I've traded, um, you know, TSXV, TSX, US. There's a reason capital, you know, loves to sit in Australia because we've got these, you know, strong regulatory environment that protects everyone. <clears throat> I just think people need to appreciate that it's actually, it, it's quite, it's quite expensive. The premium you pay for that liquidity and that visibility, especially on people's operations. Um, you know, that's something I didn't appreciate as much. So, um, we kind of operate at a level you know, where you know, we're expecting everyone to do the right thing all the time. The rules are there to catch probably the one or two percent guys that do the wrong thing, and that's fine, but it means the other 98 percent have to pay. So, look, that's probably the one thing, other than that, you know, like it's um, it's fairly prescriptive process, you know, as far as being listed, you know, requirements and things you have to do. So, I think, um, you know, little things I've found that we do differently, and it's not for everyone, but. Yeah, when you when you IPO, you know, you raise your funds, <laughs> you've got a budget for the next two years, and then you're required to sort of show the marketing the quarterlies, you know, where you're spending against that budget and how you go. A lot of guys, and you might have the same experience, irrespective of success or failure, <clears throat> after nine months they run out of money, you know. And it's like, well, you got this two hundred page document, you've gone through everything, like you've got your budget. You know, you executed against it and, you know, like you run out after nine months and it's like, well, you know, is this system really working or not? So, you know, we, we measure twice, cut once kind of guys. So whether it's, you know, the corporate running of the business or whether it's the drilling and execution, you know, it's always like best endeavors, the best way. You know, if we're going to be a little bit late or delayed because we've got the right team and we, we call it partnering. It's a bit hokey, but I mean, we're all partners, whether it's my driller. You know, the guys doing the assays, the geotech, the sample guy, um, you know, working the permits and you know, our land man and our lawyers. So we're all working together to make sure that the business has the best chance of success. You know, we have a huge insider ownership, you know, so the top 20 of, of current company on that owns like 79% of the register, you know, so, um, you know, the board of management are 15, 20%. So if you think about every dollar we spend, 20 cents is ours, you know. And so you kind of think of our life a little bit differently, you know. So we we got investors, but genuinely most of all, all of our guys on our register of shareholders, you know, all completely aligned with you know what we're doing and how we're doing it. So you know mm-hmm. that's kind of a bit different. You know, we're not here for you know, we understand what it takes to build a sustainable business, um, and so that's the exciting part. But yeah, I could do without all the compliance. Yeah. <laughs> now look, I mean it's. It's really interesting hearing it because, as I said at the start, we haven't really spoken to many MDs. I was just thinking about it before one of our guests 
who was at Canaccord now is running uh, managing director of a gold company, Alex Rivera. Those will know Bright Star, BTR. Um, it's just really interesting to step back and just understand what are actually some of the costs. But when you're talking about investors, and and I, I want to come back to the cyclicality because that's probably what our listeners are listening to is like, okay, great, that's really interesting, Mark. But how do I use some of those mismatches, those three to five to ten year cycles? How do I make some money? Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, well, if you find out, let me know. Uh, the last couple of years have been brutal. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. I think we've said before we'll uh, we're almost up to year three. We we thought it was year one down. Now it's past three years down, and we're hoping it all ends before five. Yeah. yeah so Look, this think, it's for the. Yeah. I'm just going to say for the purpose of listeners, it's November 2023. You know, yeah. just come off the worst October that I've certainly been involved in, and a lot of people I know that have said 15, 16 years. It's the worst they've seen too. So it's tough. Yeah. We know no one's got the yeah. answers, but. But I think I think the idea that you've said um, about taking a long cycle view and, and being persistent, it's probably something we can tease out there. Yeah, look, so, I mean, there's lots of, I've got like little one-liners and sayings that they're almost like things I live by, you know. So the only thing you can control is your enterprise. You know, you might think, you know, what you want to sell out or you might have your stock loss. But in the whole process of, you know, investing and being a shareholder, the only thing you can control is the day you get in. And then everything else is kind of like, you know, hope and pray sometimes can be a strategy. So, you know, I, um, I, in the old days, I used to like Tobin's view, which is basically like a replacement value. It's kind of like, um, uh, the Richard Beer character in Pretty Woman, the venture capitalist, you know, he always buy the company for five bucks and it's got 20 bucks of value. So you buy it, split it up and sell it. And so, you know, I look at that for exploration, especially because there's no earnings and there's no cash flow and there's no NPV that can be derived. It's kind of looking at the, the project and going, well, you know, what's the opportunity? You know, has it had enough work? Can I do some work? What's the value to me? Um, if I can generate a resource and I spend X amount to get to that point, will the market value me at $10 an ounce, 50 bucks an ounce, $100 an ounce? And so, you know, I think there's some driving through, you know, metrics that I use, especially in the gold space. Um, you know, high level, you know, I sort of start with, I do economics and finance double major. So I kind of get stuck sometimes in the weeds of the bigger picture. And I was a prop trader for seven or eight years. And so allocating capital more on big, you know, big ways like that. But, um, you know, so I sort of sit here and go, any given day, if I had a million dollars, or 10 million, some of your listeners might even have more to pump with. But, you know, if I have, if it's bonds or, or equities or, or, or real estate, you know, then they're my three asset classes. I sort of look at bonds at the moment because, geez, they look a bit expensive, you know, for me personally. And I look at real estate, whether it's commercial or residential otherwise, and, you know, that looks like it's closer to the top than the bottom, you know, especially relative interest rates. And then I go to equities and then you go, well, equities aren't cheap. In the US, I think they're kind of cheap globally, you know, everywhere else. And then are there pockets of value within inside those business inside the equity market? Now, <clears throat> there's a phenomenon right now where markets are gravitating towards, you know, the ASX 50, 100, 200, a bit like the fangs and the S&P and so on. So there seems to be in my mind, whether it's resources or energy or infotech, industrials or whatever, there seems to be value in that small pack micro cap space. And, you know, if you can follow, you know, general small cap fund managers, that performance has probably been horrible the last year. But, you know, privately, you'd find business trading two times cash flow. You could probably find ASX business companies with strong balance sheets, motion style business. You know, they've got competitive advantage trading on similar multiples. 
like I sit down looking at that and go, now that's a business I'd love to own, like one to two tons. And so it just comes with being curious and being interested in just looking around. You know, I think on the base that I believe passive funds, you know, that along uh, a theme called equities are hiding out in liquidity and size. And it's made, you know, some stocks expensive. <clears throat> but then, yeah, and then you've got small packs of the generals. If I look at resources space, tons of money crowding out in a particular sector. So I call it lithium. Uh, but I think there's opportunity within that space because the market sort of misses a few. But then as a generalization, I look at the gold space and I just think, wow, um, yeah, M&A activity in my experience usually happens at tops or bottoms. And so, um, yeah, Albemarle and Lion Town, Eskimo Zua, you know, would you argue it's the top of the bottom for the lithium cycle right now? And I'd say the lithium prices are down 60 to 80% and the equities are all pretty properly and you've got M&A kicking in. I'd probably happen to argue that we're close to the top and the bottom for lithium equity cycle valuations. Whereas in gold, you've got number one just bought number three, right? And they're trying to do cost out, you know, get G&A down, uh, get some synergies, and they kind of, you know, they've got the base in acquisition, like the guys at Genesis are smashed out of the park, doing all the right things, buying ounces, they've got, you know, infrastructure close by. And so I think gold is probably closer to the bottom of the cycle relative to the commodity, the gold equities. And look, they've been kicking the teeth for a reason, you know, like, yeah, massive margin compression, inflation, labor, yeah, energy prices, especially if you get an open pit. So, you know, your margin compression's been huge, free cash flow disappeared, but gold and Aussie dollars is at all time highs. And so hopefully the peak margin compression for the gold producers behind us not in front. You know, so I've been looking at gold producers. Gold explorers, there's some guys doing really good work. Um, you know, I think you've got a job resource and you're close to infrastructure. Then, you know, the, the mid-cap guys that need to buy some things to add some ounces to put in the portfolio. And so, you know, if I'm looking at the gold sector, I would say there's like half a dozen names even shopping this there. So, um, so that's kind of how I look at it, you know, how to make money. I'm not going to give you specific names because, you know, like, you know, I, I think guys need to do their own work. And it's not just like, oh, this guy sounds like I know what he's talking about. You know, because I've got my fair share of, you know, landmines I've stepped on, you know. But, um, you know, what I have learned is I don't have a portfolio of 20 names because I just don't have the, the headspace to look at all those stocks. So um, I, uh, I'll i have, you know, two, three, four names, big concentrated positions, you know, like, and I'm either on the board or, you know, running it or very close to it. And just um, I'd rather... You know, like had the 10 year overnight success, you know, like nine and a half years of grief. And then the last six months, bang, everyone's like, you must be happy. And I'm like, oh, that last nine years is a bit grim, but you know what I mean? So well, I hope you're you eight, eight and a half or nine years in already. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that means we're close. You know, we're That's close. Right. So but the day I wake up and don't see an opportunity, I might as well hang it up. But, um, you know, I've, I've, there's been ones where, I mean, like Azure, like I think the guys are in a cracking job. Yeah, the more drill, the more luck you have. You start off with the nickel and that we're having probably the best underdeveloped you know, lithium project in WA bar none. I'm not sure, but I mean, someone else certainly thinks so. So, you know, um, and I, and what I've learned in that situation is if you don't give it a go, you won't know, you know. So, and that comes back to, I think, in the mining space exploration, get these lifestyle companies, you know, like, Two years, they fund, you know, directors fees, pretend to do stuff and never do it. 
you know, and it's like, you know, Gold 50, we've been IPO for two years. Um, you know, four drilling programs and two projects, uh, three projects in two states with a discovery, you know. So, um, when the market cares about the gold sector again, I guess we'll get a better hearing, but, um, activity, you know, that's what I've learned. And you know, whether it's, uh, um, Big Ray was the same, you know, those guys kept going and going and going. And all of a sudden it's like, bang, you know, that, that's world class, if not world scale. Just on the gold comment there you mentioned, and it's made me think back to something you mentioned earlier about the the Australian dollar gold price. Mm. I've observed recently, it's, it surprises me that there's not more US dollar inflows coming into the Australian market. I mean, they get basically double a bang for buck. If mm. you want to invest a million US dollars, you can have $2 million of exposure to, to already record low um, assets. Have you got any thought or commentary, I suppose, on the, the not just the relative currencies, but the interesting capital flows or lack thereof? And interest in some of these projects? Yeah, look, I think it comes to size, you know, like so in, in currency markets per se, like everyone talks about rate arbitrage and so on. I mean, I think our two-year Aussie rate's about 4.25%. It's closer to five in the US. So is it trying, losing 75 basis points in carry by being long Aussie dollars, do you make it up in the Aussie dollar appreciating? So, you know, I'm looking at, um, you know, the, the, the trade surplus that we've got, you know, the trade balance is okay. China <clears throat> market doesn't believe that they can, you know, stimulate and reflate and so on. I'm kind of seeing all the iron ore price and coal prices and they're buying everything we're selling. So, you know, in my mind, Aussie dollar is probably the wrong price by that 10%. Just looking at evidence, which is trade flows and how the, how the globe is going. So, um, I'm surprised, uh, that there isn't more. Um, you know, if I'm thinking about the big bids like you know, the PE groups like Origin and the AGL and some of the big offshore guys coming down, um, you normally see you know, Asian-based money come in, whether it's Japanese or Singaporean conglomerates or you know, North Americans coming down using their, their cheaper cash. So I think um probably goes to show just how uncertain you know the, the buyers are. I think people have a shopping list. Um, I'd argue what New Mod's done with Newcrest at, you know, probably cycle low gold price, cycle low currency, you know, they've just used US paper and dollars to buy Aussie Aussie projects, you know, at, you know, Aussie dollar gold at thirty one hundred, you know. So that's the bit that surprised me that we haven't seen more of that happening with a few more opportunistic yeah. US dollar players just coming and in and look. And I and I think that comes down to those boards of a new one, like they know like the value of those projects and they're happy to take on the chin and you sort of like Bring it into the business and planning it out. Resource guys are pretty good at that, you know. So especially in the gold space, and I think there's nothing unique to gold other than an ounce of gold and ounce of gold. So you kind of know what you're buying. Assets are big and long life. They've got shareholders clearly supporting them, you know, and that's that partnership model. You know, I think the new model board did a really good charm offensive of explaining to their shareholders as well as Newcrest that they're better stewards of capital and those projects in the medium to long term. Okay. In the end, accidentally, we'll look back and they've probably got absolute lows for the gold price and the Aussie dollar. And maybe that's what makes them look like heroes. They just bought really cheap. But I think, you know, holistically, that looks like it's a really well-run company, you know. So um, then you look at, say, like in the in the lithium space, you know, the, the, the reasons for why Alamar was looking at Limetown or the reasons for SKM looking at Azua, I mean, you have to ask them, but I'd probably argue they might have issues in their home businesses, you know, that they're probably looking for some diversification. 
And to be honest, I think a lot of people in the lithium production sector space are quite jealous with the path of how thick it's been to get these lithium hard rock plays, you know, into the marketplace, you know. So um, the red tape and permitting that you have to deal with globally uh, just hasn't been replicated in WA. So, I mean, I'm from Calgary, I'm, I'm West Australian, so I'm always going to wave the flag. But um, if it's, like I said, we know how to do mining, you know, it's very supportive. You know, so lots of infrastructure, port and rail, everything. It's really fascinating, Mark. I mean, we could go on uh, just taking yeah. a macro view, but we don't have the time. Um, sure. I guess it, just to sort of tie it all together, I'm, I'm a listener looking at this, and and Mark, you sound, you know, it sounds so erudite, I have to say. I'm not just trying to blow smoke up your trumpet, but that, <laughs> no. these guys might be just saying, well, that sounds very easy, Mark, but, I mean, do you have any tools for people? Because it's... I see what you're saying categorically, but mm. unfortunately you get up and you go back into your your trading desk or whatever it might be for the listeners and yeah. you see shit moving around, jumping around, and you get sucked in, you get drawn into this short-term thinking. So yeah. ha- I guess I'm asking you, what, do you have any tools? Have you got any strategies for someone that's coming across this and going, okay, that sounds great, but how do I do that? Yeah, look, I, I think the only thing I can offer is, and I do this with my teenage kids or whether it's, you know, geologists that want to be more properly focused and get those questions all the time, is stay curious, you know. If you're looking at something and you're like, oh, man, this kind of, I kind of like the look of it. And you might go to the forums and you look at the history and it's like, oh, you know, he kicked his cat as he walked out the door today. He's a bad bloke. Don't look at it. And it's like some people, like you get him caught in that, you know, minutia of some of that stuff. So um, there's no substitute that if, if it looks okay and, you know, just to spend the extra day or week or month doing work on it because in this environment, the opportunity might still be there in like a month or two. And so um, if you think, if a stock's trading 10 cents and you think it's a dollar's worth of value, if you miss the first hundred percent versus twenty, but you still think it's worth a dollar, then it's still with a five bagger in it, right? And I think we kind of go, I don't mind the, the trading losses and stock losses and so on. But more often than not, if you do the work and you're like, this is a dollar's worth of value and it's trading at 15 cents, then like then you're happy to back yourself just and there's nothing more rewarding than doing the work yourself, buying the stock, seeing it come to fruition. And you don't have to sit there and like effectively subcontract it out to some platform or some meme stock thing. I don't know. So it's, it's the one tool is, hey, I've been doing it 20 odd years. I'm still learning on some things, but I'm always curious. Like, is someone doing it better, different? Um, the other thing is, and this is hard to learn. I'm in my late 40s. When presented with the evidence, be prepared to change your mind. Okay. So. Yeah, and what I mean like that is, oh, that looks like a heap of shit. It's not working. Am I allowed to swear? Can I swear? Is that okay? Sam's already started the trend, I, so it's all good. I think I okay. did, yeah. Excellent. Okay, yeah. cool. If, if, you, <laughs> if you have a view and it's like, this is a heap of shit, and then they do the work and it's like, it's not, then you're like, okay, you know, then change your mind. Um, plenty of times I've walked away from something because it's like pre preconceived idea. And then the guys just do the work, get through it, and then all of a sudden things being taken out, and it's like four hundred percent. So yeah, stay curious, and then yeah, you know, if you look at something, you have a view, but then you know something changes, be prepared to change your mind. That's really really uh, powerful language because I know I've caught myself looking at something on the face value and going, 
I know how I think this should play out and I've said that, said that, and I've been really, really wrong and it's cost me uh, because I've had that, you know, it's very difficult. But it does sound like you kind of said, you know, be be curious, be persistent, yep. but it's it's almost a bit like longevity as well, isn't it? Yeah, look, like Warren Buffett, you know, all those guys make money because it's all about capital preservation and you know, live to five another day. And so if the battlefield gets a bit bloody, don't be afraid to get off of it and, and come back. So there's nothing worse than going into battle with the, your armour and your horse and you lose a horse in the first battle and then you strip down in the second one and you're kind of limping <laughs> off the field with mortal wounds, you know. So I think, um, you know, you, it's not all, all or none. You know, it's not like 100% on black. You know, so that's the kind of gambling. And so I don't see the market as that. I think that's differentiation between a shareholder and an investor. If you start shifting your mindset, I'm a shareholder, you know, like I might own half a percent of the company, like infinitesimal. But I mean, you're a shareholder. Now you're, you're along for the ride, you know, go to the AGMs, vote your stock, ask the questions, like be a part of the process because that's what it's all about. It's far more rewarding. And they're the ones that go from one cent to a dollar. You know, you and I would probably trade it out at three cents going, yay. Didn't I? I told you about that. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, it's. uh, I think there's cheap stocks. There are great people running great projects, you know, with great processes doing really cool stuff. You know, just, you know, don't get stopped out too many times, you know, and be five another day. So, yeah, capital preservation, very important. Yeah, love that. That's bloody fantastic. Mark, I'd be remiss. You've given us a lot of really good stuff, and I know that a lot of listeners are going to really enjoy this as much as I know Joel and I have been saying we've been enjoying it too. Um, Do you just want to cover off really quickly, give us the elevator pitch on on Gold50 or your other company? We normally ask uh, people for 10 baggers. I don't think anyone will take half a bag, 20 30% at the moment. So, (laughs) you know, all full caveats. You've said it from the get-go. Do your research. This is not a buy recommendation. We know I sit pretty hot on this, but obviously yeah. just give us the give us the quick one-on-one oh, pitch. Look, be, uh, look, mate, two, so I'm happy to come back. If you want me back again, happy to come back and swap some more war stories and if there's something more specific and I'm happy to go into it. I could talk all day. Um, happy to talk to anyone and everyone, to be honest. Um, but Gold 50 is, is my passion right now. You know, we're operating in Arizona and Nevada. The reasons where there is um, you know, the, the founders of IONEA, um, you know, had some great projects and, and this is it. The one in Nevada is a bit newer. I'm excited about both. I think they're really exciting projects. First and foremost, I've invested and raised money for companies all around the world. Right now, personally, um, I think geopolitics is such a hot topic that, you know, I, I'm, I mind investing in Canada, US, Australia, and then everything else after that has to be really good value proposition. Uh, cause I'm really about, you know, strong property rights, you know, pathways. If I find a big full body, is there a path for me to get into production, you know? So my time and effort right now is 99% in gold 50. We've got a polymetallic asset in Northwest Arizona. It's like a huge galleon discovery and that a big halo around historical um, zinc and polymetallic mine, gold and silver um, grades as well. So that's really cool. And then um, in Nevada, we've got more of a, a gold project player. So what they call a carlin type gold project. So um, Carlin type gold ball bodies are very unique. They're sediment hosted, quite unique to, to North America and the US. But if you get onto one, yeah, they're kind of huge. So, you know, we've only had that project for about 10 months. We're back to basics, first principles, kind of guy. So we, guys, we went all the way back. We've done, you know, the surface sampling, 
the geophysics, the drone, the mapping, it all goes in the model and then you, you know, crunches out the model. This is what we want to test the theory and then get ready to drill. So in 10 months, we've gone from, you know, basically what is this thing to now drill ready. And that's because we've got the experience and the network and expertise. Measure twice, cut once, you know, we budget the hell out of it, making sure we get the best thing for our bucks. But, um, operating in Arizona and Nevada is pretty cool. You know, I've been around most places and operating, but this is new for me. So I'm two years in, but you know, great team on the ground, great guys here. You know, the board probably got combined a hundred years of experience, you know, so you know, we're all older than dirt, but, um, mostly have fun, make money and yeah, it's fun at all 50. Beautiful. And the code for listeners is G50. Uh, Mark, thanks for jumping on the show. It's been an absolute treat. I can't wait to listening to it again. I think this has been a really quality conversation. Uh, is there any way anyone can reach out if, if you happen to be contacted? Best way right. to get in touch with you? Yeah, via the website, the socials, you know, uh, I think someone else runs that. I'm not sure what I'm doing anymore. But, yeah, the website, the inquiries, and I always pick that one up especially. So, but, um, yeah, if you want to talk about gold, Gallium, um, how to work in North America and US and a lot of 50 states, then yeah, I'm happy to have a yarn. Well, just talk about life in general. Yeah. No, Mark, really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, thank you very much. And, and maybe right. we'll speak to you again soon. Look forward to it. Yeah, thank Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Likewise, great conversation. Cheers. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of the show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.